Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 7th of December 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News, your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson, bringing us Eastern approaches from the Netherlands and our nursing correspondent, Debbie Evans. We're starting the news with a smile today, but we can't tell you why. If you want to find out what the joke is, you need to join us in extra time. Uh, okay, let's get started uh, with, well, is it the privatization of the NHS? Certainly looks that way. This is the NHS Confederation website. Health leaders welcome new elective recovery task force, uh, but no guarantee. So the government has announced three new community diagnostic centers to deliver more life-saving checks, tests and scans and speed up diagnosis for local patients. Uh, and so they've set up, uh, this is part of the new elective recovery task force. Uh, that's set up these uh, diagnostic centres to help unlock spare capacity in the independent sector uh, to bust the COVID backlogs and reduce waiting times is what they've said. Um, so this elective task force, elective recovery task force, is the first meeting is going to be held at number 10 Downing Street today. Uh, and so because the NHS has made progress, they say, in tackling COVID backlogs, they're going to outsource more and more uh, service to private companies. Uh, Steve Barkley had this to say, the NHS is facing an unprecedented challenge to tackle COVID backlogs. The task force will look at sensible steps to utilize all existing capacity and slash waiting lists while ensuring the NHS always remains free at the point of use. And this is a, an important point because uh, uh, many people have been saying over the last couple of years that the, intent, the government's intention is to make the letters NHS a brand, a commissioning brand. They're going to commission services from private uh, organisations. It's basically pointing at the end of the NHS as we have known it. Uh, this was part of the statement. Experts will focus on how the NHS can utilise existing capacity in the independent sector. That's their typo. Uh, to cut the backlog. The independent sector has been used to bolster NHS capacity and ease pressure at critical times for nearly two decades, delivering over 450,000 appointments in October alone, approximately 6% of NHS care. Commissioning of independent sector services by the NHS uses existing budgets and comes at no extra cost to the NHS, delivering value for taxpayer money. So that, the question is, is that true? Does it come at no extra cost? Because maybe it comes in terms of bottom line uh, dollars and cents uh, amount. It comes at no extra cost, but the costs aren't just financial costs. So let's have a look at this report uh, from the BMA. This is from June, I think, this year. Uh, outsourced the role of the independent sector in the NHS. And it's this point that I want to make from this uh, report. The BMA has clear and long-standing policy uh, opposing outsourcing of NHS frontline clinical services on the basis that greater use of independent service providers by the NHS could lead to a decline in standards and poor value for money, fragmentation and destabilization of services, putting staff and patients at risk. Um, so uh, Debbie, uh, welcome to the program and just ask for your thoughts on this because it looks very much like uh, the end. Yeah. I mean, I think it's I think it's been coming for quite a long time. And ever since it, the NHS logo has always been a very interesting thing to me because we see the NHS logo on ambulances and um, we think, oh, it's an, it's an NHS ambulance. Often it isn't. It's a it's a private outsourced independent supplier or contractor. And this has been happening within the NHS for ages. And it's been part of the deliberate destruction 
And quite clearly, we're already seeing that it's not even a two-tiered system anymore because we know from the interview with Fran Adamson that uh, the service in the private sector is is often using substandard equipment that's been rejected from the NHS. So clearly we're in a complete state of collapse where this country doesn't appear to have any form of health system. Uh, Debbie, uh, could I just add to that uh, for our viewers and listeners, of course, UK Column has been doing some particularly interesting interviews with NHS professionals over the last couple of weeks. And um, your interview with Roy Lilly was very interesting because we could hear uh, some of the opinions of people who've been working in the NHS. Um, Roy Lilly is a a NHS trust chairman. And uh, we've also got Duncan White coming up tomorrow talking about privatisation and whether it's all bad. But that interview has a particularly interesting twist in it. So we're going to ask our viewers and listeners to stay with us as we get deeper into the NHS. And we'd like to thank all the NHS professionals that are coming to the UK column in order to talk about what's really happening. Okay, let's move on then to this. And that is the news that uh, Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine for use in infants and children aged six months to four years has been approved. Uh, by the uh, Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency. Uh, This is what June Rain had to say about it. Yes, that caught me out until you explained that, of course, she said nothing. No, and this is really the first time uh, one of these MHRA press releases has come out uh, where we haven't had any comment from June Rain in the press release at all. And I find that very telling. I also find it very telling that there was very little coverage, if any, in the mainstream press. Um, So... uh, uh, what are they saying? Authorization has today been granted for a new presentation of the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine uh, for use in infants and children aged six months to four years. Uh, the MHRA has authorized the vaccine in this new age group after it has been found to meet the UK regulator's standards of safety, quality and effectiveness. Uh, they're going to provide a, a lesser dose. Uh, so it's going to be three micrograms compared to 10 micrograms for the older children. Uh, it's given as three injections in the upper arm with the first two doses given three weeks apart, followed by a third dose given at least eight weeks after the second dose. Uh, but don't worry, because to reach their decision, the MHRA's experts carefully reviewed data from uh, original uh, or clin- uh, clinical trial data involving 4,526 participants. Debbie, uh, how many of those 4,526 participants were aged uh, six months to four years, do you think? Uh, do you know what, Mike? I am completely, I'm beyond speechless, really. I am beyond speechless because one thing we need to highlight too, not just the amount of children that weren't involved, but we need to in, in, inform people that this is three injections. So they've updated it to three injections. But breaking news today on Prime Minister's questions, Andrew Bridgen to his credit, and I think we should all be supporting him very strongly, he stood up in Prime Minister's questions and directly asked the Prime Minister if he would please reconsider this decision, bearing in mind the experimental nature of mRNA, especially in children. And he was given pretty short shift back from Rishi Sunak, who assured everybody that the injection was safe and effective and that the, it was the JCVI 
it was their responsibility to make the recommendation. So whilst it's the MHRA's obligation to approve it, authorise it, it's then up to the JCVI to approve it for specific age groups. And that's just a short, quick answer that Rishi Sunak gave. And then he just moved on. But Andrew Bridgen did a really good job. Well, yep. I'll just add to that. There's a lot of people saying that Rishi Sunak will soon be moving along. We shall see. Um, I just wanted to highlight uh, a letter. Well, in fact, there are two letters. This, this one, I think, was from June. Uh, this is the uh, Children's uh, COVID Vaccine Advisory Council. Uh, and this letter in June was suggesting, asking, demanding that the MHRA do not authorise COVID vaccines for infants down to the age of six months. Uh, I just wanted to show this, the list of, uh, of names on them. I mean, it's scrolling past very fast. You won't be able to see that there, there are quite a significant number of names on that. Uh, I believe there was a, a second letter went uh, just a few days ago, again, asking them not to, to take this step, but they did in any case. Uh, so, you know, there is a significant body of uh, uh, doctors within the UK against this, uh, this idea of vaccinating children uh, using MR mRNA technology in, uh, from the age of six months onwards in the UK. And, th and they should have a proper voice in the media, of course. Yes. Uh, so that does this take us back to you, Debbie, uh, the uh, the father of the ninth child to die of strep A. This is the other big health story, of course, at the moment in the UK. Surging outbreak pays tribute to his five-year-old princess and says he wished she could have, been, uh, have walked out of hospital holding her daddy's hand. Uh, Debbie, uh, I don't know what you're going to say here, but it's, I'm seeing quite a number of headlines saying my child died because the doctors didn't respond or the, uh, we took the child to the hospital three times in a row and, and the child was sent out again without any kind of treatment. Is this, is this mostly the result of uh, uh, failure of the health service again? Well, I just want to, I, I wanted to pick up on this story because it's also been um, mentioned in Prime Minister's questions and Keir Starmer brought us up this time, Director Rishi Sunak. And I see, I think what we need to understand is strep A, invasive strep A, which is called IGAS, is very, very rare, really rare. Strep A throats, most parents, I mean, how many of us have had kids that have had a really bad rotten sore throat or tonsillitis maybe? But this is the, the condition that they're highlighting here is extremely rare. They say there's been nine cases since September. But I just want to highlight what Milton Keynes NHS Trust says, because they because there is a difference between the invasive um, strep A. Gas is, is, is basically a, a group of strep A and eye gas is invasive. So Milton Keynes say that while infections like these can be unpleasant, they rarely become serious. When treated with antibiotics, an unwell person with a mild illness like tonsillitis stops being contagious around 24 hours after starting their medication. Further on down, you can see a little piece about invasive uh, uh, group strep A, and this is where it gets much more serious. But I have to just... To, to bring parents back to you know your child best you really do you need to trust your own judgment i had um, a child my youngest son had meningococcal septicemia at three weeks old he became very unwell very very quickly floppy unresponsive with a very high fever i knew there was something very very wrong with him most kids with tonsillitis 
give them a few ice creams and 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 treat them with maybe a teaspoon i spoke to fran adamson last night actually who said any child with a, a sore throat spoonful of manuka honey clove of garlic a little bit of ginger if they can wash that down that'll do a great amount of good but i also spoke to a gp who said that the criteria for giving out antibiotics which is the treatment for a strep a the the criteria is pustules in the throat swollen lymph nodes a high fever and the absence of cough okay so we don't need to be blanket giving out antibiotics however it would appear that the government have seemed to be recommending that children will be given antibiotics for whatever sore throat even if they the throat swab which is generally how you how you diagnose a strep throat it can take a few days but they're saying now that oh well perhaps we'll we'll just give antibiotics to entire year groups maybe we'll just throw them out now this is this is unprecedented and as we'll see later on in the news this flies in the face completely of the government's antimicrobial resistance policy so it's two policies working in in operation and and what's worrying too is that they're saying that thousands of children could miss school <laughs> but one of the reasons that we're seeing strep a could be because of lockdown however schools look as though they're going to say look if a child hasn't been on antibiotics uh, for a sore throat for 24 hours they're not welcome in school we can see that schools are already doing deep cleaning we can see that the the fear factor is being ramped up and i understand i do understand if a child gets very sick and there is a danger that if it becomes invasive then they can get very sick very quickly and in that circumstance you have to call a doctor however we have a problem in this country at the moment well globally actually in that we have a penicillin shortage now traditionally for strep a a doctor will prescribe antibiotics if they see those criteria so the pustules in the throat swollen glands high fever etc parents will probably have given their children cowpaw infant paracetamol according to the patient information leaflet inside because don't forget it's paracetamol if that child deteriorates then they get very sick very quickly but antibiotics are in short supply and the government has just said they're not in short supply don't worry we've got plenty however this is not what we're hearing from pharmacists and we have we've we've been hearing this for quite a while there's going to be some form of antibiotic um shortage and and pharmacists are telling us there are and if all parents are going to go running to their doctors for antibiotics honestly the gp that i spoke to last night said this is unprecedented but what can we see coming down the line is there something more sinister coming down the line are we going to be telling parents that there's a a, a vaccination for strep a is that what we're looking at are we going to rush something down with the 100 day mission or indeed is this going to be another reason for the government to say your children's immune systems have been compromised during lock up so therefore you've got to get your children um jabbed with covid-19 because clearly we can see the drive for the covid-19 vaccine is still going on they're still pushing it so you know we have to be mindful of the agenda we saw it with respiratory syncytial virus exactly the same and now we're seeing it 
with um, strep A. So parents need to, you know your children, you know your children, and if you're really that worried, then call a doctor. But otherwise, if they're running around and they're complaining of a sore throat and they're able to eat an ice cream, just keep an eye on them, is my advice. Okay, thank you for that. Now, you, you've had a res, um, response from the MHRA here on COVID-19 vaccines. I know that you've stayed on the case. What's the significance of this reply? Well, this is a very interesting reply, and I'm not the only person that's received a reply late on a Sunday evening. And this time, as we'll come to see in a minute, this was from Andy Morling, who is the enforcement officer for the MHRA. You might remember that we he was on a board meeting recently. Now, it's a little bit, again, sorry, Mike and Brian, it is a little bit small for me to read, but um, I will, I will very, very quickly say that he does say that some side effects can come to light when used by larger number of people that took place in clinical trials. Well, of course, we've rolled it out nationally, but that paragraph that I've actually written in red, I wonder if one of you would be kind enough to read it because I think, Mike, you'll be interested in what he says in the second paragraph. Okay, I'll, I'll just do one of the other lead-in sentences because I think it gives it a bit of context. Uh, he's saying this uh, this was regarding support for vaccine injured, which I hope reassures you that patient safety is our highest priority. Regarding your first question, with any major new UK vaccination campaign, we always develop a proactive uh, vigilance strategy and the COVID-19 vaccines are no exception. Like all medicines, vaccines can cause side effects. Most are mild and short term, and not everyone gets them. Some side effects can come to light when used by a larger number of people than took part in a clinical, re, re, sorry, than took part in clinical trials. With respect to the anticipated volume of suspected adverse drug reactions uh, reports for the COVID-19 vaccination program, this was estimated from a number of previous vaccination campaigns. I've got to just stop there, was estimated from a number of previous vaccination campaigns. My goodness. We acknowledge that actual numbers of reports will depend on various factors, including the number of doses administered and use of concurrent treatments, for instance, to manage fevers. Our past experience with other new immunisation campaigns is that we tend to receive a single yellow card report per thousand doses administered and so we prepared our surveillance systems on this basis. Uh, Debbie, I think people are going to have to freeze the screen to read the rest of it, but yeah. this is truly incredible. They are now being forced to admit. That, um, I, I, I almost don't know how to describe this because it's not incompetence. This is planned incompetence. This is a complete yeah, and utter failure of due diligence. Yeah, absolutely. But you know what? I would really, I would really like Mike, if you wouldn't mind, to read out that second paragraph because it's exactly what Mike has been talking about in the past. So it might answer one of Mike's questions, but it's gonna, it's gonna bring more questions forward. I think. Okay. Uh, so he he went on to say it's important to note that a report of a suspected side effect is not proof that the vaccine caused it, but a suspicion of this by the reporter. 
We developed a range of resources and technology to support the proactive vigilance of the COVID-19 vaccination program. The use of artificial intelligence was one element of that. We take every report of a suspected side effect seriously and we have combined the review of reports of adverse events of special interest with statistical analysis of anonymized clinical records. This specific AI tool chosen for the surveillance of COVID-19 vaccines was due to the potential size and scale of the vaccination campaign. The tool was not used for the assessment of yellow card data, but to help ensure that all the information from the reporter is well structured to support anal analysis and subject to robust quality assessment. This is a really important point. They didn't use AI to, to make any kind of analysis of the data. What they did was they, used, they set up an AI system, they claimed, to fill in the blanks on Riello card reports that were submitted by uh, doctors and the general public. Uh, we don't know what the algorithms that were behind this AI were. Uh, we don't know or are, and we don't know what changes they were making to uh, reports that were being submitted. And so it's impossible to know whether uh, the reports were submitted were actually submitted accurately at the end of the day, Debbie. Yeah, absolutely, 100%. And, you know, um, and I, I know we're, we're tight for time, so I, I want to carry on with the letter because it gets even worse. And I think, again, viewers are going to have to freeze the screen because there's so much information in there, specifically also pertaining to children. The second part of the, of the letter, and, and you can see, um, hopefully, if you've got the slide there, Mike, I've got a picture of Andy Morling um, on, on the slide. Is there a next one? Sorry. Sorry. Uh, yeah, Debbie, I don't, I, I don't have it just here at the moment. So, so. Oh, OK. So very quickly, the letter finished um, talking about children and how the children's jabs would be approved by the MHRA and how they, the decision basically would be thrown over to the JCVI. But it also says that the National Institute for Health and Care Research, NIHR, has allocated more than 110 million pounds for COVID-19 vaccine research that includes consideration, consideration note of vaccine safety, covering monitoring of adverse reactions. The Department of Health and Social Care has also commissioned a 1.6 million pound programme of working through the NIHR to understand the rare condition of blood clotting with low platelets following COVID-19 vaccination. Now, this letter was written by Andy Morling. The, the title under the letter, and we'll make that available for everybody, I promise. Um, the title is Andy Morling, Di Deputy Director of Enforcement. But on his LinkedIn profile, it says that he's Head of Enforcement group at Medicines Health Regulatory Agency. So I thought, well, there's two different titles. So if he's writing to me as deputy director, who is the director? Where is this person? So it was then that I found a Dr. Sarah Branch. And Dr. Sarah Branch, she joined the agency in, in um, 1994, but she was appointed to this, this role as the Director of Vigilance and Risk Management of Medicines um, back in 2019. And her responsibility 
includes the yellow card scheme for reporting adverse drug reactions, benefit risk assessment, and updates to safety information. So this is Dr. Sarah Branch. Now I've looked at a photo of her and I have seen her somewhere along, along the news way back when, but I haven't seen her at a board meeting. I've heard Andy Morling remotely at a board meeting. He was the one that said he wanted to put a ring of steel around the UK so we didn't get any, any drugs from any uh, unauthorised pharmacies. He was the one that said one in 10 of British citizens are buying benzodiazepines online. And yet we've got Dr. Sarah Branch, who nobody seems to know very much about. So, you know, that there's more questions to ask with the MHRA than they've answered. But I think we're obviously getting them a little bit hot under the collar. I was very surprised that it was he that wrote to me. Brilliant. Thank you, Debbie, for that. Now, Alex, uh, we've got uh, a letter here to Dr. Albert Borla. Actually, from Dr. Albert Borla, who rather like uh, Andy Morling, is double-hatted uh, in that Borla is chairman of the board and chief executive officer of Pfizer. And uh, we have recently covered the, uh, as have many uh, of the freer news uh, platforms, uh, the remarkable exchange in the European Parliament uh, between one of Bourla's immediate underlings on the board uh, and the lady addressed here, uh, Mrs. Kathleen von Bremt, a Belgian member of the European Parliament who chairs the Special Committee on the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, Bourla is saying, no thanks, I don't want a second round of that. Very, thank you very much. So uh, in among, um, uh, amongst a lot of flimflam uh, of how much we treasure and value you, dear MEPs, uh, Bula puts this uh, uh, one-liner in telling, it, telling the European Parliament to do one. All the events that he's just listed were live streamed to the public since the October hearing. Uh, that's the one in which the Liverpudlian board member said we were flying at the speed of science and didn't have time to check whether we could stop transmission. We have no further information to share with your committee, so we respectfully decline the invitation to again revisit these issues. Um, he looks a bit perturbed, shall we say, by the prospect of bad publicity. Uh, just by way of prolepsis into our uh, forthcoming articles, something that Debbie wrote mid-year is very soon to be published uh, specifically about or with a protagonist being uh, Mr. Uh, Morling, Andy Morling, who is either deputy or head of criminal enforcement at the MHRA. The question in the article there is what is Medicrime? Uh, we also have uh, something rather uh, relevant on the way in, in uh, uh, other ways as well, which has just eluded me. So I'll go on to the next slide, which is uh, also covering the European Parliament. <clears throat> Here we have in the daily clout, nearly 200 so-called fringe scientists are fighting for the European Parliament to recognise the rights of children during the COVID-19 pandemic. Now the COVID uh, parliamentary inquiry at the European Parliament had to be fought for tooth and nail by citizens signing petitions in various countries. This is a long article and well worth reading in full. As usual, it will be in the show notes. You sometimes have to wait overnight, but the show notes are these days always uploaded on the ukcolumn.org video uploads of the news. Um, and the authoress uh, here, Irene Lost, has been in touch with me. Uh, so instead of reading out what's on screen there, people can freeze the screen. I'll read what uh, the, the author sent me. She says that this article about the fight in the European Parliament tells the convoluted story of how uh, 
uh, MEPs, members of the European Parliament, didn't really want to have their attention drawn to the harms uh, caused to children by COVID vaccines and other COVID combating uh, uh, measures. Uh, and she says she wished to convey with this long article exactly the difficulty and the numerous impediments that they've been encountering. So uh, at, at every stage, uh, clerks, officials, sometimes members of the European Parliament themselves would say thank you for the petition as per European Union law and uh, and custom. Uh, we've looked at that you meet the numbers, but there's no need to go further with it. Uh, so they've had to fight, fight through that. Uh, in Britain, there are two particular bloggers of note, both London mothers in their 40s. They now have a Substack blog and a book out. The Substack blog is called Broken Custodians, and their latest blog uh, has a subheader that masking children in Britain now was a political decision that was not risk assessed for a month, for a year and a half. Uh, details are on screen in an extract. Uh, rather uh, horribly, Gavin Williamson has now been knighted, so he's referred to as Sir Gavin in the middle of this piece. Uh, and he did not, when he was Secretary of State for Education uh, in Britain, effectively only covering England, he did not have an assessment for masks in schools. And there's a lot more about how adults' feelings were more being protected. The authors of that piece uh, have a whole book out, also available as an audio book now on various platforms, The Children's Inquiry. They've had to give it that ironic and sad title. It is a very heart-rending book because we haven't had an official one. Uh, the full title is How the, the Children's Inquiry, How the State and Society Failed the Young During the COVID-19 Pandemic. Uh, Liz Cole and Molly Kingsley are the two authors. And it's now come back to me. The other forthcoming article that I was trailing is that a, a very good uh, academically qualified uh, published author is coming on board as, an, as a, a, a UK column writer for us now and is pointing out the fundamental flaws in the use of artificial intelligence to replace human thinking. So I think that's directly relevant to the way that the MHRA has functioned here as described by Andy Morling to Debbie Evans. Okay, and uh, where does that take us then, Alex, to uh, uh, Helen Harvey? Yes, we're going to be trailing shortly how uh, Debbie did a, a wonderful interview uh, released yesterday with Roy Lilly, one of the good, free-thinking, broad-minded, older managers of the National Health Service. And he pointed out in an aside there, or both Debbie and, and uh, he, Roy Lilly, did, that the NHS Foundation Trust in Harrogate uh, in Yorkshire, in York, North Yorkshire, has got uh, an, a, a thou shalt mask again policy and thou shalt social distance uh, acting as a law unto itself. Here's something else concerning from Harrogate as a viewer sent us. Helen Harvey, the service manager for school age immunisation service in that local NHS trust in North Yorkshire, has uh, issued a mass letter to parents and guardians uh, to years seven, eight and nine. So that is uh, 11 to 14 year olds uh, in the English education system. They're going to be delivering a nasal flu vaccination. No word on whether it's an mRNA platform or not. Uh, there are some occasions, says Ms. Harvey, where an injection is the most appropriate route for vaccinating for some children. The consent form that the link below takes you to is for nasal flu. If you select no, you will be asked a series of questions to establish if your child is eligible for an injection. And the viewer who sent this back uh, saying his child was absolutely not going to get it, uh, replied further to Miss Harvey, why do you use behavioural manipulation techniques such as, quote, if you select no, you will be asked a series of questions to establish if your child is eligible for an injection, end quote. Is it not more reasonable to assume that those who say no are saying no because they know vaccines are useless and in some cases cause severe harm or death? 
He talks about the official science being garbage. So he made a strong fist of it in a lawful, calm and polite manner. And I think a lot more of our views will be doing likewise. Okay, okay. Alex, uh, thank you very much for Sorry. that. I'm just uh, an interjection on the subject of behavioral manipulation because uh, you've quite rightly po pointed it out here or the viewer pointed it out in respect of Harrogate and District NHS Foundation Trust. But of course, this is occurring across the country. And a big thank you to the viewer who pointed this document out to us. It's from October 2021. It's from the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. Uh, what's the title? Net Zero Principles for Successful Behaviour Change Initiatives. And what I really want to do in this short segment is to drive home to people the power of these sorts of initiatives and how the fact uh, and the fact that they're spread right the way across all of the agency, uh, the government agencies and subjects themselves. But of course, who have we got linked in with this in this particular document, linked in with the department, we've got the behavioural insights team and encourage our viewers to go and actually have a look at their website. I have tried numerous times to speak to them, but they don't want to reply via their media number or, or via email. Um, but go and have a look at the people involved. So I've just chosen this particular gentleman, Chair of Behavioural Insights US. And if you have a look at his background, appointed by President Barack Obama to serve in the position of Associate Director of the Office of Strategic Partnerships of the Peace Corps. So just think about the quality of the people involved and uh, start to ask yourself whether you trust them to change your behaviour. Um, but this is also available on the Behavioural Insights team. It's a little video clip. Well, it's, it's a... Um, cast. Uh, it's a cast, thank you, Mike, because it's actually um, over an hour long. Encourage people to have a read of it, have a listen to it. Sorry, I'll get there in the end. Um, but uh, the key bit is that uh, if you start to have a look at the people involved, um, so it says in the second of a two-part cl climate change special, BITS Head of Energy and Sustainability, Toby Park, sits down with Cambridge University Professor Teresa Marteau, uh, uh, Moira Nicholson from the Cabinet Office and Valentin Quino from the Centre for Cities. So what sort of people are we talking about? Well, here's the lady from the UK Cabinet Office and you can have a look at her background, whether you would trust her to change your behaviour. Um, here's the University of Cambridge and uh, uh, we've got Professor Dame Teresa Marteau, um, DBE, and uh, the third of the ladies here, Valentine Quinio, here, Senior Analyst, and uh, she's the Centre for Cities. And where this takes you very quickly is back into the whole uh, political, quasi-political agenda of the city-states. So we've gone from behavioural change to people using those behavioural change techniques in order to completely restructure society. Um, if you delve into Centre for Cities, you're going to find that uh, uh, David Sainsbury is a very powerful man within that organisation and he even has a number two to help him in his duties. So is this an independent organisation or is something else going on here? I'm going to suggest it's anything but um, independent. 
And if you have a look at Lord Sainsbury himself, a very interesting book, Progressive Capitalism, How to Achieve Economic Growth, Liberty and Social Justice. So don't worry because with his team, David Sainsbury is going to modify your behaviour, but it's going to achieve liberty and social justice, Mike. And uh, I'm just going to add to this as a little bit of a, uh, a deviation, but not too far away. Many people have been talking to me about the activities of our old friend, the political charity Common Purpose. Of course, Common Purpose has never gone away. And I found on their website this very interesting uh, article here um, about civil society and um, why it needs to be controlled effectively. Uh, this brings us uh, back into this book. Um, so we've got The Open Society and Its Enemies by uh, K.R. Popper. And uh, Sir Ralph Durandorf, who wrote the previous article with CP, um, was a student, as was Soros, sorry, Soros. So that takes us through to the Open Society Foundations. And of course, it's Open Society that's funding many of the agencies that are now picking up the behavioural change. So I picked up on this article from The Guardian, um, the George Soros philosophy and its fatal flaw. Interesting to see The Guardian was critical, um, but you notice that even The Guardian picked up on the link with Karl Popper, uh, who was the uh, uh, influencer of Soros. Uh, but a key statement in that article was this one for Soros, the goal of contemporary human existence is to establish a world defined not by sovereign states, but by a global community whose constituents understand that everyone shares an interest in freedom, equality and prosperity. In his opinion, the creation of such a, a goal, a, a, such a global open society is the only way to ensure that humanity overcomes the essential, sorry, challenges of climate change and nuclear proliferation. Trying to go a little bit quickly there but with a, an eye on the clock, but it doesn't take too long to go from the mechanisms of behavior change to see that what is actually happening is a strategic change of whole society and the nation state is not going to be forefront in the world in the future. Um, Alex, um, a little bit of a digression there, but uh, the behavioural change is not something which is a little bit of um, playground stuff that's being used by NHS trusts. It's, it's far from a playground, it's a battleground. We usually get comeback from viewers by email when we mention Karl Popper as George Soros's mentor. Those who are up on their mid-century continental philosophy in the structuralism, existentialism, empiricism debate, usually say Karl Popper was a well-meaning old duffer who fled the Nazis and Soros took the ball and ran with it in another direction. Uh, I have some sympathy for that, but the irreducible essence of it is that Popper thought an open society was one in which people atom-like float in and out of societies. They're all the same, they're interchangeable, they're fungible, uh, and really there's no distinctives in place or time. There's no culture, there's no heritage. Uh, I'm sorry to reduce Popper to that, but I'm afraid uh, at the best reading, uh, with the best will in the world, that's what it comes down to. And this is what Soros got his brainwave from, the idea that people's minds are a tabula rasa uh, and that they can be encouraged to, to build the new society. Yes. Okay. Well, Alex, let's uh, come back onto the British Medical Journal then and uh, understanding and neutralizing. They want to neutralize what they describe as COVID-19 uh, misinformation and disinformation. 
Well, this paper by UC Wang et al. was carried as opinion on the 22nd of November by the British Medical Journal. It's not the first recent appearance of a call for totalitarianism and the end of scientific inquiry in the BMJ. I won't read the text on screen, given how many slides we have today, but people will see uh, from the author affiliations that all but one, other than Wang uh, herself, who is uh, in Italy, all but one of the other authors are British-based um, the, other, the remaining one being an American-based PhD candidate, uh, sorry, uh, a, a, a US-based um, uh, professor of social and political science, rather. I've got that wrong. But anyway, uh, no, it's a research fellow is the US-based. All the others are in, in the British NHS. Uh, so this is largely British medics pleading for censorship. Uh, so we talk about uh, the initial lockdown uh, and all measures subsequently having been opposed by some people, and these are ghastly American-like uh, po po populists. Uh, they go on to talk about infodemics, uh, parroting what Dr. Tedros, so I should say Mr. Tedros Ghebreyesus, the uh, the leader of the uh, World Health Organization, talks about. It's a key part of pandemic man uh, management, and they call for legal measures in a bit I haven't shown on screen. And finally, they talk about how to deal with science denialism. Uh, and they talk, just as we were doing in an earlier segment, noticing this, that halfway down that, down that final extract, you see that children could have been protected. I think they're talking about masks here without naming them, but they've been unnecessarily exposed to a virus through this lack of, uh, uh, of, of uh, hard action by governments. There's been some comeback. Uh, and again, I won't read these, but you can see just from a casual glance at the, uh, you can get this by going to the page in question and going to replies, of which there are five at the moment. Um, you can see that the UK Freedom uh, Medical Freedom Alliance uh, finds itself maligned uh, and says that they have been named uh, without being given the right to reply. Uh, this approach borders on the defamatory, is manifestly unscientific and falls short of the BMJ's editorial standards. On the left, you see that the Heart Group, H-A-R-T, well known to most of our viewers now, uh, has said that uh, they have uh, uh, really been uh, produced as well. Uh, finally, among the five replies, I highlight this one by Dr. Ros Jones, who says uh, that Dr. Wang is calling for censorship and an end to scientific discourse. And she's not sure whether Dr. Wang has read any of the publications of those whom she attacks, uh, which is probably quite near the bone. So one more from me. Oh, so beg your pardon. We've changed no, no. the order, so I shouldn't. No, no, that's that, it. So. That's it. That is from you. That so is. this is this is the uh, the Birmingham City Council tender notice, uh, Alex, and I just uh, tidied this up a little bit. So we've got a description here. The council wishes to appoint one supplier for the provision of national and international genealogy services for the purpose of locating next to kin in order that the council can comply with its statutory obligations under uh, the act. You can tell us more about that in a second. A single supplier model has been chosen. Uh, and uh, what they're basically saying is the selected supplier will use the lead information to locate a relative to undertake necessary funeral arrangements for the deceased. So what are they saying here that when somebody passes away, uh, if, if they don't have uh, immediate contact details for their next of kin, they're going to they're going to employ at goodness knows how much money, because I noticed on this tender document, there's no value applied to it. They're going to employ a, an organization to search through genealogical records to track down the next of kin in order to slap a bill on them. 
Yes, and it could go as far as DNA uh, mass uh, sampling here, uh, because Birmingham City Council, given that London is 33 boroughs, uh, Birmingham City Council is the largest municipality in the United Kingdom, and it's very roughly comparable in population terms to Amsterdam, the largest Dutch municipality. Uh, the Dutch press have covered over the years that Amsterdam, and therefore presumably Birmingham too, is facing hundreds and hundreds of anonymous funerals a year of people who died in in the in their apartments alone or whatever uh, but the, the the new angle here is those who've been euthanized or pathwayed um so if we put the screen back the slide back on screen we can see that the viewer who sent this through to me made the cynical gloss on this after we've dispatched you we'll send the bill to your family and you're quite right to notice the open ended uh, uh financial or budgeting here mike they they must be thinking it can recoup more than it it's uh, is an outlay so we'll send the bill to your family who might be some cousin in pakistan or somebody in Britain who can't speak English, we'll send a bill to your family and we'll we're not pretending that we are not collecting data. No, indeed, they're not because they're talking about data right here. So without a universal population register, which is still beyond the pale in, in Anglo-Saxon countries, this is a backdoor route uh, to achieving the same, which is pinning the costs of sometimes uh, non-voluntary hospital deaths uh, on the next of kin, whether they're in Britain or not. Yeah, OK, thank you, Alex. Now, let's... Uh... Uh, just quickly move on to digital currencies and I just wanted to highlight this although it's probably too late uh, to do anything about it now because uh, this debate will be happening uh, within the next hour or two I would have thought. But this is from uh, Toby Young's uh, Free Speech Union uh, and he's saying uh, as you may recall Sally Ann Hart MP tabled an amendment to the Financial Services and Markets Bill a couple of months ago which would have made it illegal for payment processors like PayPal to withhold or withdraw service from customers on the basis of their lawful political beliefs. After a conversation with the bill minister, uh, she withdrew that amendment, having been assured that the government recognised this was a problem, particularly as we move towards a cashless society, uh, and would consider whether the best way of solving it was via legislation or regulation. Well, the bill is coming back to the House on Wednesday, that's today, uh, and there's been no communication from the government about the issue, so Sally-Ann is retabling her amendment. Uh, if, we, if we're to push the government to act on this, it's very important that as many MPs as possible speak in favour of Sally-Ann's amendment, and that's new clause 27 uh, during the debate today. Now, it's unfortunate that uh, we only saw this today, uh, but nonetheless, that is happening this afternoon. Uh, I still think it's worthwhile making sure that your MP, all our MPs, uh, understand that this is important. But uh, moving on to uh, the issue of central bank digital currencies, and one of the uh, countries which is well ahead of everyone else is Nigeria. And uh, a couple of days ago, yesterday, uh, the Nigerian central bank pushed out this release. Uh, and what's it saying? Uh, that now the maximum cash withdrawal per week via automated teller machines uh, shall be uh, 100,000 Naira, sus subject to a maximum of 20,000 Naira cash withdrawal per day. Um, so that's 100,000 Naira per week. So basically, what does this work out at? So now limited to $45 per day and $225 per week from ATMs. Uh, individuals and businesses will also uh, be restricted to taking out $225 and $1,125 respectively at banks, so that's if you go to the actual bank counter, uh, that's the maximum you'll be allowed to take, with individuals uh, being given a 5% fee and businesses a 10% fee for any amounts above those limits. So if you want to take your own money out of your bank account, you've got to pay uh, 10% uh, to the bank. 
the maximum cash withdrawal via point of sale terminals, so in a supermarket or whatever, is capped at $45 per day. Now, why is this happening? Well, let's have a look. Uh, here's Haruna Mustafa the Nigerian, from the Nigerian Central Bank saying customers should be encouraged to use alternative channels, brackets, internet banking, mobile banking apps, USSD, cards, uh, eNara, etc. to conduct their business transactions. And it's eNara that is the most important because this is what it is. Uh, it is, of course, a central bank digital currency. This is what they say about it. Uh, with 81 countries and more on the race to develop their own central bank digital currencies, let it be very clear that we are not just another CDB CBDC. We are a people-oriented digital currency leveraging technology to connect individuals and businesses for easy trading and financial inclusion. We push the boundaries, bridge the gaps, and tell actual human humane stories. We are the foremost audience-centric digital currency brandishing a face. Uh, wh what do you say about that? I'll well, just... I'm laughing, Mike, but I'm not laughing because it's funny. It's incredibly serious, but it's it's got to... Uh, what, what are a lot of people saying these days? Clown world. This is part of clown world. Well, look, I'm just going to make the point that only 53% of the Nigerian population actually has access to electricity. At, uh, that's 2020 is the most recent statistics on that. So, you know, uh, they've clearly got the priorities right. Yes. Okay. Let's uh, let's move on. Uh, uh, Alex, uh, purchasing gold. Yes, a viewer has written, and I won't read it all out for lack of time. We have so much uh, today, but uh, I know that some of our viewers like buying gold and silver bullion by post from various sellers. Perfectly lawful, and if you get it right uh, and look carefully at the regulations, also not taxable, as it uh, is the same same in most countries, especially if you buy vintage coins. Uh, but anyway, MasterCard, being one of the big three credit card companies in the world, uh, has decided to block the purchase within Britain. There's no foreign angle here other than MasterCard being in St. Louis, Missouri. But it's a British viewer buying bullion from within Britain for delivery to Britain using sterling. But the MasterCard credit card uh, blocks the transaction and MasterCard reviews it and says that a couple of weeks ago, transactions of this kind are called security threats. Uh, so the viewer concludes, are the Bank for International Settlements, the International Monetary Fund, central bankers and the World Economic Forum now shutting the stable door before the horse has bolted, keeping us within the system, that is, so that we don't have access to alternatives to get round their planned DIs, digital somethings, central bank digital currencies and social credit systems. And of course, social credit is the other half of this motor because... Uh, the infrastructure will be CBDCs, but the decisions on uh, whether you don't get your humane stories at the point of sale in Lagos or London, uh, that will be, of course, social credit derived by a different set of programmers or AI. Uh, but Der Spiegel has got from its economy imprint uh, a similar announcement that the Bundestag uh, has at federal level in Germany decided, and this is in one of the most cash uh, keen countries in Europe, Germany, for good reasons historically, Germans and foreigners living in Germany will no longer be able by law to use cash or cryptocurrencies to buy real estate. And look at the red uh, rubric at the top there, Maßnahme gegen Oligarchen. So this is being carried by Der Spiegel, well on side with the globalist press, of course, as an anti-oligarch measure. Uh, okay, yes, of course it is. Uh, right, uh, let's move on then very quickly to energy. And uh, well, good news, apparently, because uh, the UK and the United States have entered an energy partnership. 
Uh, I'm sure most people have heard about this uh, by now. Uh, the initiative will be steered by a new UK-US joint action group, lots of new groups being set up, led by senior officials from the UK government and the White House, and they're going to drive work to uh, reduce global dependence on Russian energy uh, exports, stabilize energy markets, and step up collaboration on energy efficiency, uh, nuclear and renewables. But the main point is that it it's going to guarantee supply into the UK of huge quantities of liquefied natural gas from the United States, uh, something along the lines of at least 9 to 10 billion cubic metres of LNG over the next year to UK terminals. Um, and of course, this is all fracked uh, gas from the United States. Uh, together, the UK and US will ensure the global price of energy and uh, security of our national supply, says Rishi Sunak, uh, that it can never be again manipulated by the whims of a failing regime. Uh, this partnership will bring down prices for British consumers and help end Europe's dependence on Russian energy once and for all. Do you think it'll bring down prices? Not at all, Mike. No. Not at all. No. Uh, so uh, this is what uh, the... Um, uh, sorry, the Institute for Economic Affairs had to say the UK will pay a premium on import US fract, imported US fracked gas while sitting uh, on 50 to 100 years of our own reserves. Uh, well, of course, it's being used by some in the, in the country to demand that uh, we open up uh, the fracking industry in this country. Uh, but uh, certainly there will be a premium on US uh, fracked gas. Um, so that takes us to Ukraine, perhaps. Well, it, well, it does, and I'm going to come in on Ukraine. I'll try and cover this in the t in the time we've got. It's just been such a busy uh, news today. But um, on one hand, you know, we're 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 in trouble. We can't afford to uh, to get in the gas and the fuel. The prices are going up, but billions going into Ukraine. Let's have a look at what the Ukrainians are saying about themselves at the moment. So this is from Kiev Post, exclusive insight, crackdown on corruption in Odessa. Uh, this is a story about uh, Ukrainian law enforcement officers raiding uh, Odessa City Hall and its investigators of the National Anti-Corruption Authority of Ukraine. Um, so suddenly uh, it appears that there's an attempt for a crackdown but as you get into the story, you start to see that actually this is because they are they're worried about um, uh, really how the West is seeing them in light of loans to Ukraine. Um, but um, this one here is saying that uh, it's an organized scheme due to which the Odessa port facility lost some 93 million. And it goes on with other figures of, of millions. Um, which is all to do with uh, corruption within Ukraine. And we've already said on the UK column that there's weapons systems coming in from the West and then going out the back door to be sold on the black market. So corruption is the issue. Um, but the Kiev Post was also kind enough to point out that uh, something uh, quite exciting was going on. Rebuilding Ukraine, London Forum highlights opportunities and barriers. And what was interesting with this article is that they had this picture of the conservative trade envoy for Ukraine, 
uh, Baroness Mayer, and she had this. Well, she, she wasn't saying this word for word. I've inserted this from the text from the company, but uh, from the article. But she was busy praising various companies and organisations. So let's have a look at it. I'm delighted to open the Ukraine Infrastructure Forum. I would also like to thank the Strategy Council and representatives of the international finance and banking sectors, private businesses, the Ukrainian government, and representatives from Ukraine's local authorities. She was praising all those people for being present in this, uh, in this very interesting gathering. And in the article, it goes on to talk about the money. So we've got the European Bank of Reconstruction and Development, EBRD, saying they'd got a portfolio of $4.4 billion, 53% in infrastructure, and they've already committed 1.1 billion this year and are, and are, are going to give a further 1.5 billion next year. So money is of no object when it comes to Ukraine at the moment. The World Bank here offering 2 billion to fund the private sector and local governments. And um, the, the article then went on to say this, while the mood of the forum was generally upbeat, the vast scale of the undertaking to restore and renew Ukraine estimated at no less than one trillion opened many questions that will need to be addressed in the near future. So this is what uh, Zelensky was talking about when he was uh, begging the West for that trillion dollars. But meanwhile, the destruction goes on. But Newsweek uh, was very interested. This is quite an old article. Um, and uh, why was I interested in this? Well, Boris Johnson's Ukraine trade envoy says Germany not totally our friend. So we can bring in the Baroness again. And what part did she play in this article? Um, well, this is uh, part of the background. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson's trade envoy has warned German leaders that they risk being on the wrong side of history by vacillating on support for Ukraine in the ongoing Russian invasion of the country. Um, so um, this is uh, what it was all to do, uh, uh, all to do with. And if I just uh, bring in a couple of the detailed bits here. Um, uh, so German-born Meyer spoke at the launch of a report by the Council on Geostrategy detailing the security situation in the Black Sea, which called on NATO nations to increase engagement uh, with regional allies in the face of Russian aggression and destabilization. So who exactly was the Council on Geostrategy? We'll come there, but let's have a look at some of the comments. Um, so she's talking about uh, Germany's hesitation in supporting Ukraine. That means getting the weapons in. I think once again, Germany is probably a little bit on the wrong side of history. Uh, Schultz's resistance to sending more weapons to help Ukraine makes his pivot to expanding German spending, defence spending, very dubious. On one hand, we've just heard that Germany is selling arms to Russia, and on the other hand, that they are still buying quite a lot of oil. Uh, Schultz came out and said, we can't really reduce our dependency on Russia because it's going to be an economic disaster. Well, that was factually correct. And um, uh, she goes on with this very vitriolic criticism of the Germans because they are not getting into the war fast enough. And uh, here, if, a Russian, if Russian President Vladimir Putin succeeds, he's, he's on his way to turning all of Europe in, into a Russian sphere of influence in which NATO is neutral 
and the Americans are, abs uh, are absent. So I've labelled that, would that actually be so bad? But my point is that on one hand, this woman is clamouring to get the weapons into Ukraine and to keep the war going. And then she turns up on stage to help advise as to how the destruction is going to be rebuilt, making more profit for the people who provided the weapons. And uh, if you want to have a look at the Council on Geostrategy, uh, this is um, their opening page. And we've got a little bit of video where they're saying in their own words what they're really about. Britain hoped in the aftermath of the Cold War that the world would improve, that freedom would spread, and that global cooperation would intensify. However, we were too complacent. Our country and its partners faced numerous growing threats, and now our future looks more uncertain than ever. We looked on as Russia dismembered Ukraine. We've struggled to confront China's global expansion, and we have yet to acknowledge the severity of the environmental crisis. Meanwhile, anti-unionist and anti-enlightenment forces have emerged among us, weakening Britain's ability to respond. To this we say, enough is enough. And to meet these challenges, we have founded the Council on Geostrategy, to take part in the continual struggle to strengthen Britain and reassert our leadership in an increasingly uncertain and dangerous world. With our Strong Britain initiative, we advance robust new approaches to strengthen our country's national resilience, bolster its industrial and technological base, and boost its discursive diplomatic and military power. Our geopolitics program sets out to promote realistic new geostrategies in the Euro-Atlantic, the Indo-Pacific and the polar regions to enhance international security and cooperation with our allies and partners. And with our environmental security program, we provide responsible new solutions to render our economy more prosperous and sustainable and to spread green technologies around the world. From the heart of London, our mission is pursued through research and events. We engage with parliamentarians, policymakers, foreign diplomats and officials, the press, experts, businesses and the wider public, both nationally and internationally. To find out more about our mission, our programmes and our initiatives, please visit www.geostrategy.org.uk So my question is, who's running the show? Is it the British government or are we into these very powerful think tanks? And it didn't take much uh, research on the Global for on Geostrategy's uh, website uh, to find this little bit here. Uh, the Council on Geostrategy is a member of the Development Concepts and Doctrine Centre Global Strategic Partnership run by RAND Europe. So very, very quickly, Alex, um, we are in here to the very powerful think tanks. This is way over the heads of governments controlling this agenda. And uh, we'll have a little look at RAND. But uh, what are your thoughts? Well, it's not the first time that we've covered this uh, spin-off of the Henry Jackson Society that calls itself the Council on Geostrategy. Uh, the lady whom you heard in the voiceover there is Victoria Starich Samuelieni from Lithuania, uh, who holds an MA in Intelligence and International Security from King's College London, that's Academic Spook Central. Uh, she was telling us about our country, Britain, our inclusively, and how we must not tolerate anti-unionist forces, although that was the uh, 
the other narrator there, I think, which I presume was James Rogers. No, this is think tank. This is this is well over the level of Westminster, really, in the amount of uh, influence it has, the amount of transatlantic influence. Um, and by the way, you were talking about the corruption involved with Zelensky. Uh, and the other day, of course, we played that strange gravelly voiced clip where he was talking about a trillion dollars. He was mentioning there the city of Odessa as a particular honeypot for that investment. The previous president there, Petro Poroshenko, Zelensky's predecessor, brought Mikhail Saakashvili in from Georgia to be the anti-corruption supremo in Odessa city and region and then spectacularly fell out with him. Long backstory there. Uh, and since then, of course, Zelensky's banned all the opposition parties and now the or Russian Orthodox Church as well. But I think we must be barking up the wrong tree to be asking questions here because the big read brought out by the Financial Times in its Person of the Year uh, article is a feature on Volodymyr Zelensky and it says, quotation, the president of Ukraine embodies the resilience of his people and has become a standard bearer for liberal democracy. I'm sure that the Council on Geostrategy would agree. Okay, thank you for that, Alex. Well, of course, you, you hit the target straight away. Let's just bring up two of the names. Here's James Roger, Rogers, co-founder and director of research, uh, background Henry Jackson Society. And this is the lady that you mentioned and quite rightly, background Henry Jackson Society. And if we go to that particular society, I found this a really offensive opening page. And it says, opening a second Western front against Putin, Russia's Latin America proxies. So there's no doubt, doubting what the Henry Jackson Society is about. It's, it's uh, pressing for all things US in the first instance, and everybody else is going to suffer if you get in the way. Um, if you have a look at international partners, though, if we just jump back to the Council on Geostrategy, I was very intrigued with this one, Ukrainian PRISM. Uh, this is it here. It's all about uh, peace and conflict. Um, fascinated with the uh, logo. Uh, but of course, this is another think tank operating deep inside Ukraine and uh, funded by American uh, money, amongst others. So who's calling the shots? I don't think it's the Ukrainian government or the British government. We've got some, uh, we've got think tanks way above that level. Yes. Okay. Let's uh, say that if you would like, uh, if you like what the UK column does, you would like to support us, then please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out. Uh, you could pick something up at the UK column shop, but as we said, if you wanted to do that for Christmas, time is running out. So please uh, uh, do pick up whatever you need sooner rather than later. Uh, but please do share anything that you find on the various platforms as well. Uh, I'd like to mention that on Saturday uh, this week, uh, we are hosting on behalf of the Doctors for COVID Ethics uh, another symposium, the Symposium 5, um, and a whole host of fantastic speakers on that, uh, and including Sukrat Bhakti, Catherine Austin Fitz, Patrick Wood, uh, Wolfgang Vodarg, uh, Michael Palmer, uh, and so on. Uh, and uh, well, they're going to be talking about uh, mRNA, they're going to be talking about how to stop the shots, uh, and menticide and mass atrocity in the era of COVID-19. It's going to be an interesting day. Um, and uh, that will begin uh, at uh, 1400, uh, sorry, 1600, four o'clock, uh, Saturday afternoon, UK time. Which is going to be a lot of work for you, Mike. We'd like to say from the UK column, we're delighted that the doctors have had the confidence in UK column 
uh, to come back to us and I'm sure this will be an excellent event. Uh, and just a quick reminder that then the following Thursday, December the 15th, uh, also on the UK Column website, starting at 4.30 p.m., uh, David Scott's event, uh, Education, Not Indoctrination. Uh, he'll have more to say about that on Monday, no doubt. In due course, yes, okay. Um, I will just move over this next one. Uh, so let's go past that. And uh, we've got uh, the French team are also working very, very hard on matters to do with uh, the vaccine and getting the truth out about what's happening. Uh, they've kindly sent us a little video clip. Um, it's got on-screen translation. It's very short, but let's have a look at what they're trying to do in France. Le 10 décembre 2022, témoignons et changeons l'histoire. Nous avons choisi pour cet événement le 10 décembre 2022, jour anniversaire de la Déclaration universelle des droits de l'homme de 1948, car il s'agit d'une guerre contre l'humanité dans le double sens de la communauté humaine de la Terre et ce qui fait de nous, corps et âme, des êtres humains, avec notre mémoire et notre avenir. Le 10 décembre 2022, à partir de 10h ou de 14h selon vos disponibilités, témoignons partout publiquement par l'image et la parole. Faisons en sorte que personne ne puisse échapper à cette réalité, Encourageons et amenons nos proches et quiconque nous connaissons à témoigner. L'inutilité et les dommages provoqués par les injections ont commencé à se répondre dans les consciences. Un travail de fond est à l'œuvre. Si chacune de nos voix ne comptait pas, il n'essaierait pas de la contrôler par la censure, de contrôler la moindre d'entre elles, chaque voix portant la vérité, les fait trembler et les ébranle. So we're going to say well done to all the people who've got together in France and who are standing up to be county. And if you're a French speaker and can help promulgate the event, we'd be extremely grateful. Here's just a picture. Uh, does it show much? Well, in some ways not, but in other ways it does. This was sent through to, to us by Paul, who'd witnessed some people arriving at a roundabout close to the Windsor Slough area, as you can see from the sign and they'd got a variety of banners. They just started to post these when a number of police cars turned up and it was very clear very quickly that the police were gonna get very aggressive if they attempted to post these signs. Uh, ultimately, the group moved down the road and were able to post the signs here. Uh, but the viewer said to me, it was just incredible to watch the nature of the police simply because people were posting signs. Uh, and Alex, very briefly, please. Yes, uh, just as we mentioned, Roy Lilly is a big hitter in NHS thought and uh, a well-intentioned and well-informed man. We did have a bit of flack in the chat room uh, during the live streaming of this yesterday. It's now on the front page of the website. The title is former NHS Trust Chairman Roy Lilly. Is the NHS safe? People were calling him controlled opposition and saying he had the wrong narrative. I think we'll be getting that into that in extra time. The whole point is to establish uh, with Mr. Lilly and others of his severe, of his great caliber, uh, that we are safe and responsible people to talk to, and that we will let people, uh, we will bear them out and hear their message. Really, that's as important as a purity spiral of having people whom we agree with 100% on the show. And Debbie Evans did a spectacular job of interviewing him uh, in a winsome way. So I think there should be building more bridges that way. Uh, we'll continue to point out to our viewers that we're not interested in what's now called purity spiraling. 
and having only people on side who agree with us on everything, medical or otherwise. Uh, among De Debbie's many other recent good interviews, this is particularly heartrending and uh, uh, compelling. Uh, Adam Rowland, uh, fixed up with his oxygen line there, uh, talking about how horrendously he's been let down. Uh, if I gave one detail, it would do injustice to all the others. He's the man who lost everything. He's, you know, he's more or less on the level of a blues song, how much he's lost. It's, it's, it's appalling to listen to. Uh, but more importantly, even than that, is that he's had to tweet uh, since then that people who have shared his interview on Facebook have had him, uh, the, the share taken down in some cases being banned. He's got the right determination, though. I am not misinformation and we shall not be silenced. And he invites Facebook to make medical judgments on the basis of his actual medical records. Yeah, okay. Thank you for that, Alex. Uh, where does that take us? Uh, right, Debbie, let's uh, come on to antimicrobial resistance. Right, well, I'll try to get uh, through these as quickly as I can. So antimicrobial resistance arises, this is the government's def definition, it arises when the organisms that cause infection evolve ways, ways to survive treatments. The term antimicrobial includes antibiotics, antiprotozoals, antivirals and antifungals. Now just quick examples of that are you'd use an antibiotic for strep A, you'd use an antiprotozoal for something like malaria or toxoplasmosis, you'd use an antiviral for something like HIV or herpes and you'd use an antifungal for something like athlete's foot or thrush or there are some obviously more serious um, fungal infection. So AMR is everywhere, as you probably just saw in that slide, the World Bank, the WEF, the United Nations. So where do we go to in the UK? Well, we go straight to Dame Sally Davis. And I know that we've spoken about Dame Sally Davis before, but I just want to highlight her again, because she was the chief medical officer before Chris Whitty. She's now the UK special envoy on antimicrobial resistance. She's a hematologist and her husband is an experimental haematologist. Who knew that one of those existed, eh? Um, so then I wanted to see who else was involved in this whole AMR thing. And very quickly, I could see that it was actually our very own Jungle Joe, Matt Hancock, who introduced the, um, it, he launched the press conference into AMR. And actually, for anybody that's watching now live, Matt Hancock has just decided to stand down as an MP at the next election. So he won't be re-standing for his seat. I wonder why. But he's he, he's, he knows an awful lot about AMR because he launched the, the, the vision. And there again, we see Dame Sally Davis at the bottom there. She's a trustee of Bill Gates's Gates Cambridge people. Now, uh, Bill Gates is very involved in antimicrobial resistance, as you can see. So we've got a huge amount of people involved. Now, I just want to take people back if they haven't ever met uh, Dame Sally Davis. This was Dame Sally nine years ago. It's a very, very short clip. Have a look at this. Hello. I want you to join me in watching the panel discussion at the Royal Society of Chemistry about antimicrobial resistance. And I want you to join me because there's some exciting science in this, but more importantly, this is a grave threat to our society as we know it across the whole globe. Already we know that people are dying because of antimicrobial resistance. Indeed, at least 25,000 in Europe every year, 23,000 in the States, and sadly, 
one small child or baby every five minutes in Southeast Asia. This is so important, our government is going to put it on our risk register for the government next to climate change and terrorism and pandemic flu. We are all taking this seriously, but the way we're going to solve this threat is through science, and the science will be exciting. Join me in watching this live panel discussion. So that was Dame Sally nine years ago saying that this was a global threat. Let's look at Dame Sally two weeks ago. And again, this is a very, very short clip, two weeks ago. We all know that without diagnostics, current and new antibiotics will be incorrectly prescribed and overused. That'll speed up the development of resistance and puts us all at increased risk. say that nine years I think has taken its toll on Dame uh, Sally Davis. However, um, being terribly polite, what I will say is that Dame Sally Davis met with David Cameron back in, I think it was 215, 216 at the Welcome Cafe. And she warned him of what was going to happen with all of us using antibiotics so much. There was going to be disease X and what were we going to do when we didn't have all of these antibiotics. So David Cameron commissioned the O'Neill report back in 2016 with regards to antimicrobial resistance. And you can see it there up on screen. You can see Jeremy Hunt's name down in the bottom left-hand corner. Uh, we always knew that he his name would pop up somewhere. But I've highlighted a couple of things there and I'll read them quickly because it's relevant to, to the story that we've already run with regards to strep A. So 3.3 says, it is critical that patients receive the antibiotics they need, but to protect those same drugs, we must ensure that they are used only when appropriate. Goes on to say, we will reduce inappropriate antibiotic prescribing by 50% with the aim of being a world leader in reducing prescribing by 2020. And clearly you can see that this has been discussed at a United Nations um, meetings as well. And then when we just flip forward to what Sally Davis is saying now and the fear, because she's still banging the fear drum. So she's actually saying that antimicrobial resistance is more serious than climate change. So um, AMR could kill us before climate change. Uh, so here we go. We're starting to see the next emergency, the next global fear factor being ramped up and considering that they don't want to give out antibiotics it's quite extraordinary that the governments are throwing out this policy with regards to strep a moving on to teresa coffee because she figures heavily into this she was very naughty and she gave a box of antibiotics to a friend and she got absolutely chastised for this so as a result um, and she also wanted when she was health secretary she wanted antibiotics to be um, available over the counter, which in some case, uh, in some countries, I think Thailand is one of them, they are available over the counter, where she was called moronic and, and all sorts of all sorts of things. So she was called out for that. And Sally Davis is still going on about why antibiotic resistance isn't going to go away. In fact, she's even spoken, because there's a charity, Antibiotic Resistance, um, Antibiotic Research, 
UK is the charity. Um, and we haven't done any research into antibiotics really since the 60s. And even recently, I think it was GlaxoSmithKline have decided to pull one of their clinical trials for a new antibiotic. So, you know, here we've got Dame Sally Davis lecturing antibiotic research. <laughs> what She should be there saying, you know, promoting more research for antibiotics, um, not saying that we're going to lose them. But I just want to refresh people's memories into sparse pandemic 2025 to 2028. We've mentioned it a few times before on UK Column, but it's really relevant. Um, this was a futuristic scenario by the John Hopkins University, and it looked at what happened with the coronavirus between the years 2025 and 2028. If you go to download the PDF, you'll see this chapter, chapter 16, which is called Antibiotics Ho. And I'm going to let you freeze the screen because I know we're tight for time. But if you freeze the screen and read just that page, you'll see that the situation that we're seeing now with strep A is exactly what you're seeing projected there. So I would urge everyone to go and have a look at Spars Pandemic 2025 to 2028. And then I don't know if you've got the finally... Um, slide there about drugs having two names because i just briefly wanted to highlight people don't realize drugs have two names so something like diazepam is also known as valium we are getting new drugs coming down the line we've got antivirals and monoclonals now you need to inform yourself of what these drugs are because a name that might sound very easy to pronounce might not be what the active ingredients are. So, for example, antivirals and monoclonal antibodies, anything with a VIR at the end of it, at the end of the medicine or the ingredients, suggests that this is an antiviral. Anything with MAB at the end of it would suggest that it is a monoclonal antibody. Both, both of these medicines can be new and novel and not have gone through um, the clinical trials that we would expect to see. And some may have also been trialed on specific cohorts of patients. So please check both names, check your medicine before you take it. Okay, uh, Debbie, thank you very much. We are going to have to finish the news there. We've still got material to cover. So we're going to encourage all of our uh, UK Column subscribers to join us in extra time when we will cover the uh, material that we've we've still got in the can um, that includes quite a bit from Alex uh, things are moving so quickly now with news and events in UK and worldwide it's getting increasingly difficult to uh, keep the UK column news within a relatively short sp uh, period but uh, we think uh, we'll end the news here and as I say if you're interested in in the other subject elements join us in extra time Big thank you to everybody watching us and a especially big thank you to people watching us from overseas because we know that our overseas audience is growing. So wherever you are in the world, yeah, the USA, New Zealand, Australia, thank you very much for what you're doing. And please keep spreading the information. See you, there. Yep. See you in a few minutes. Bye-bye.